The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. That a death toll due to the cholera outbreak now sitting at 17. It's up from 15. The Gauteng Department of Health has been uh, giving an update. We will speak to the Department of Health spokesperson in a couple of minutes. There are 29 laboratory confirmed cholera cases in the province. Many of those around the Jubilee District Hospital, which has seen around 165 patients uh, being admitted there with the symptoms. Uh, of course, there is still all of the politics going on around around this. Uh, lots of finger pointing as I told you yesterday. The Twani City Council is sitting today. The Finance MMC was expected to talk about the budget. Also was expected to make an announcement on the situation in Hamans Kral, but there's been disruption there. We'll speak to Taviso Goba, EWN reporter, who's been following that. But in summary, what happened was the EFF uh, in their red overalls arrived today and they arrived with a bottle of water from Haman's Kral and they poured a glass of water and slid it over to the speaker and you could see it was a little tepid, a little murky, the water and they said that uh, the proceedings would not go ahead today until the mayor had a drink of the water from Haman's Kral. We'll have a listen to Obankeng Ramabudu, the EFF regional chair earlier today. Drink that water and let's see if indeed the water of Haman's Kral is clean. We have brought you water, we can drink it with you, and we must get sick, both of us, because you have stepped the water of Amastral stream. And this all is because of the tests that have been done by the city, which have shown that the water in Hamad's Kral is not the source of the cholera. We still don't know what the source is. Well, we're going to go to the city council in a couple of minutes, but first let's speak to Foster Mohale, who's the Department of Health spokesperson. Foster, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, the numbers now, the death toll is sitting at 17. What is the latest in terms of, uh, of the cholera outbreak in Hamad's Kral specifically? Uh, good uh, good afternoon to you, Mandy, and good afternoon to the listeners of 702, and thanks for this opportunity once more. Firstly, let me uh, uh, express the deepest condolences on behalf of the Department of Health to all the families of 17 people who have died in Amastral as a result of the outbreak. But also wish uh, all those who are still admitted in our hospital uh, speedy recovery. Yes, uh, as uh, we've uh, announced earlier on that uh, the death toll has risen to 17 people uh, so far. But uh, the, 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 the confirmed case is still uh, sitting at 29. But currently we have got about 67 people who are admitted. So as soon as we get the results, we'll be able to make an announcement so that uh, people will know what's the current situation in Hamaskaran alone. Foster, is there any clarity on the source of the cholera in Hamaskaran? Uh, we are working closely with the, the different entities, uh, the Department of Water and Sanitation, uh, the Water Boards, Makhalis, uh, Rainwater, and also the City of Tuan, uh, in order to uh, try to investigate what could be the main source, where, where, is the, where did the contamination uh, take place, because uh, they ran the test at other uh, water plants, they said the, the, the results came back negative, so we are 
trying to work closely with the other authorities in order to test different uh, water uh, systems. Uh, you know that the people of Amaskara, some of them, they also get water through the uh, water tankers, the Jojo tanks. So they are also testing the water in from those uh, Jojo tanks in order to establish where could be the where where the contamination uh, probably uh, took place. So for now, as we continue with this, but we want to continuously, uh, uh, I mean, uh, raise awareness about uh, the importance of uh, uh, personal hygiene. People try to protect themselves while we continue to investigate where could the problem align. Foster, there's also an outbreak in the free states around the Parais area. Uh, do you believe this to be entirely separate and, and, and what is the status of that outbreak? Yes, uh, currently, yes, uh, the, the situation in uh, free state is entirely not connected uh, with the situation in Hamaskra. It's only Limpopo and Hamaskra. So, so far, we, we are still trying to uh, investigate in both sides. So, the free state was still sitting at the six cases uh, of uh, people who have tested positive. No fatalities as of now. Of course, uh, there were people who passed on a few weeks before we uh, confirmed the outbreak in Free State, but unfortunately, because uh, no samples uh, were taken, we could not uh, link uh, their death with the current outbreak in the province of Free State. Foster, thank you very much. Uh, Foster Mahale, Department of Health spokesperson, speaking to us there about uh, the situation with the cholera outbreak. So, uh, as I said, 17 people have now lost their lives. There are dozens of patients at the Jubilee Hospital. Still no clarity on the source. Uh, now, in terms of political responsibility and what's happening around this, as I mentioned, uh, there was supposed to be uh, a session in the council in Tswane today where the finance MMC was expected to talk about the budget and make an announcement on Haman's Kral. That's been disrupted by the EFF and their bottle of water from Haman's Kral. Tabiso Gorba, EWN reporter, has been following the situation. Uh, Tabiso, give us a, a sense of what's been happening. Well, um, as I said, Mandy, the MMC for finance, he decided, um, so he was supposed to uh, deliver a speech. Um, uh, it's a budget speech, but obviously the most interesting point was obviously how that the city was going to respond to the um, to the Hamaskar water crisis and especially to the Royal water plant. Um, obviously, um, the EFF um, disrupted EFF councillors, um, who actually are councillors and they are supposed to be in this meeting. So they disrupted um, the meeting and um, you know they bought a bottle of water and they poured it in a glass for, for the speaker and the mayor and said, you know, before this meeting, if this meeting is going to continue, then you have to drink that water. But I will tell you that, Mandy, um, you know, we have... Uh, been given uh, a brief by the mayor. Uh, hang on to me, so I have to yeah. jump in because I know that everyone's going to ask this question. Did they drink the water? No, 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 they didn't. <laughs> Probably no, very didn't. wise considering the warnings from the health department not to drink the water. Uh, go on, what happened after? Yes, uh, um, Mandy, we have been given um, a brief uh, by the mayor to their brink. And um, so what is the, the city is planning to do? So it has reprioritized um, a lot of its budget and it will be um, investing around 450 million uh, to complete phase one of the Royal Water um, Wastewater Treatment Plant uh, upgrade. Uh, we do know that um, there was a contractor that was appointed in, uh, in 2019. However, obviously, um, they didn't do a, a lot of good work, and we understand that about 60% of the upgrade in, at the Royal Wastewater Treatment Plant is, um, is still uh, yet to be done. So 450 million over the next uh, three years is going to be invested by the municipality 
But then land it gets interesting because phase two of the Royal Waste Water Treatment Plant um, is 2.5 billion rand. And the city doesn't have that money. So the mayor said, you know, they will be um, looking to uh, the Development Bank of South Africa and also other government entities. Um, you know, he's, he's meeting with the Minister of Water and Sanitation in a couple of days um, just to find out, you know, if they can provide the city with money uh, to raise the 2.5 billion rand. Tabiso, thank you very much. Uh, Tabiso Goba, EWN reporter in Tswane there, where uh, the council has now been disrupted because of this. Do, do you think it's just gamesmanship, tactic, or do you think it's a very good illustration of, of what the problem is uh, for the EFF to bring along a, a glass of water for the mayor to drink? Uh, the other thing here, and I wrote about this uh, in my column on EWN last week, is that all of this mismanagement, the corruption, the inability to govern, it is not a victimless crime. When you have people who are dying from cholera because we cannot get clean running water to them uh, who's ultimately responsible is there some kind of culpable homicide claim against the government uh, you know could we see some kind of civil action ultimately politicians have to be responsible here because we have 17 people now that have died from cholera in Hamans Kral alone on 702 and Cape Talk this is the midday report with Mandy Wiener brought to you by Netbank Commercial Banking Specialists to enable your business growth aspirations. 1217 in the Midday Report. Let's go to the courts now. That bail application of the five former G4S officials arrested in connection with assisting Tabo Besta to escape from prison. There has now been um, a decision there that judgment will be handed down on Monday. We've been hearing closing arguments in that matter from the lawyers representing the five accused who have all brought those bail applications. Oren Singh, EWN reporter, has been following this. So Oren, what's the latest development there? Afternoon, Mandy. Um, yeah, so basically, the matter has been postponed to Monday for a judgment. The magistrate made it clear that he was he was a bit taken aback by the argument um, today. That remember the the closing argument had rolled over from yesterday into this morning, and it was only about a one and a half hour session in court this morning. But the magistrate was a bit taken aback by the defence team's argument. They were arguing that. Um, the children of the accused, many of the, the five former G4S employees have kids. And they were arguing that their children, the children need their parents. Um, and their parents are now detained and have been detained for a couple of good weeks, in some instances a month and a half. And they're arguing that they, the children need their parents and therefore they should be released on bail. The magistrate was a bit concerned about this, saying that why was this not put in the initial affidavits in the beginning of the bail application, and why was this aspect not heard right at the beginning? He uh, raised concerns as to why it had been brought up right now towards the end of the bail application and the closing arguments. So that was just a bit of concern raised by the magistrate. But the matter has been postponed to Monday, and the magistrate will be handing down judgments regarding whether these five former G4S employees are going to be awarded bail or not. Oren, thank you very much. Uh, Oren Singh, EWN reporter with the latest there. So we'll have judgment on that matter on Monday now. The Midday Report. The former Premier of Gauteng, David Makura, he is giving evidence today at the Life Sedimeni Inquest in the Pretoria High Court. That inquest uh, set up to determine whether or not anybody can be held criminally liable for the deaths of 141 mental health care patients who were transferred to unlicensed NGOs from life acetamini facilities. Uh, so at the moment, David Makura is giving uh, evidence there. Uh, it looks like Advocate Lawrence Hodis, uh, who I think uh, represents uh, Gwen Rambachope in this matter, is asking 
questions. Let's have a listen in, and this uh, sound is courtesy of the SABC. Something that's important, it's an important change, it's a reprioritization and utilization of the funds, do you agree with me? Under cost containment savings, do you agree? When you say reprioritization, I now I don't... So you are saying the money is being moved from providing a core service uh, or it is money that is moved from an institution that was providing that service to another institution that will provide the core service. Because reprioritization, I have explained to you, Council, what my understanding of reprioritization means. But the point I'm making, sir, is that this is an important decision that's being taken on the basis of a presentation by the department to the PVC. Do you agree with me? This is an important decision taken by the Department of Health. Can you please, sir, tell us on what basis this was not included in the minutes of that meeting? Uh, if you... Uh, my lady... Uh, with regard to the minutes uh, of uh, the PBC, my my explanation is is, is very uh, simple. There are things that a department come and report to the PBC, and the PBC take them as a common cause. The department is going to do that, and then the PBC has no problem with what the department is going to do. Uh, if there was a different decision that the PBC would have arrived at, uh, the PBC would have said, no, uh, you have asked for this. Uh, we, would not, uh, uh, we do not agree with what you are saying. So, That is the former housing premier, David Makura. He's testifying at the Life Sedimeni inquest. He's being asked questions there by the senior advocate, Lawrence Hodas. Uh, just a correction on what I said. Uh, advocate Hodas is representing the former health MEC, Kadani Maklango. I think I said it was Gwen Ramachopa, but it's the former health MEC Kadani Maklango's legal representative. So that's the former premier appearing before Life Sedimeni inquest today. The Midday Report. Good afternoon, Mandy. I thought that was Julius Madema. Sure. It's true when they say um, we become the company we keep. I'm not sure if this is the right move, though, because nothing will happen there. They've got to approve the the budget for the water to be purified. Sure. Thank you, Mindy. Thank you for that. A reference there to the clip I played a bit earlier on uh, from Obankeng Ramabodu, who's the EFF regional chair, uh, who uh, arrived today with a glass of water and handed it to the mayor, the speaker of Tuane, saying that the, the sitting could not proceed until they drank the water from Havans Kral. Is this an effective tactic? Should they rather get on with the business of the day, pass the budget and get stuff done? Uh, or is this more effective in terms of illustrating the impact uh, of how terrible the water is in Hammond's Crawl. Keep sending me your WhatsApp voice notes. Let me know what you think. Latest news, breaking stories, expert analysis. All you need to know in 60 minutes. This is the Midday Report. The convicted child sex trafficker and rapist Gerard Ackerman is uh, back in court today, this time in the Alexandra.
Magistrate's Court. Uh, he was found guilty of over 700 counts of rape, sex trafficking, exploitation of minors, attempted murder, the creation and distribution of child porn. Uh, so let's speak now to Khomoto Mudise, EWN reporter. Khomoto, good afternoon to you. If Gerard Akaman's already been convicted, why is he back in court standing trial again in Alexandra Magistrate's Court? Good afternoon, uh, Mandy. So this is for a different, a completely different matter that dates back to August 2018. He is alleged to have sexually assaulted an 11-year-old boy at the Morningside Country Club. And at the time that he was um, linked to the other crimes that he's now been convicted of, and was convicted of in the High Court, he was actually out on bail for this matter, out on 5,000 rand bail for this particular matter. So this trial, or it hadn't gone to trial yet, um, was ongoing at the time that he was linked to the other crimes with uh, Paul Kennedy. And so he, um, now that he's been convicted of um, the over 700 counts that you have counted, he still has to answer to this particular matter here at the Alexandra Magistrates Court, where we've had a very short sitting today. What happened in the sitting today? Well, first, uh, Mandy, I mean, with Magistrates Court, you know, the courts will process and hear matters from other uh, cases. These are matters that are postponed. These are matters that are expected to be uh, part heard. We saw that happening for majority of the morning. And then only uh, about 30 minutes before load shedding, now at 12, was Akraman's matter then heard. And today we heard from a police officer, a commander from a unit um, at the uh, Sanson Police Station who had allegedly arrested, who apparently arrested him actually um, for this particular matter and the swim school matter that he was convicted of in Johannesburg. Now he's been giving testimony today and it was a very brief testimony. I mean, um, we just had heard his examination in chief for about 20 minutes. Uh, before the, the court heard that we're going to do load shed at 12 o'clock, and so it had to be postponed. Now, I mean, you know, in light of the fact that this is a trial that's been ongoing for five years, this really shows mm. just how systems in this court have been terribly affected by load shedding and how this matter is moving so slow compared to the conviction that we saw in the high court. Um, where that trial was really heard, um, and and we've already seen a conviction. Yeah. Khomoto, I spoke to Sipa Kema yesterday, uh, who was in the East London Magistrates Court, because the Inyobeni Tavern matter was there. It also had to be postponed because of load shedding. You spent a lot of time in the courts. What's your experience of this? You know, Mandy, this is an everyday thing in many of the courts in the country, particularly Magistrates Court. I mean, I've seen in some high courts there will be an issue, but I must say that I've experienced matters being postponed, matters not even sitting because of load shedding, particularly in the magistrate's court. And it's really, really uh, shocking when you realize also that in the last judicial uh, service report that we got from um, the Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, they didn't have any reports from the magistrate's court. I mean, I asked him specifically why the magistrate's court are not bringing the statistics at all when any person, the first people who are processed or any person that is processed in the court must have their first um, you know, interaction with the magistrate's court. It is really interesting to see how magistrate's courts are almost neglected. I mean, um, they are the, the, the first port of entry, really, for anyone. Mm. And majority of them do not have backup. Majority of them do not have generators. We got a commitment from um, the Chief Justice Ramazanda that they would be working on getting those generators, particularly for these courts that mm. have to process large numbers of people like Alexandra. But from today's experience, it seems that process is very, very slow.
Khomotso, thank you very much. Khomotso Modise, EWN reporter. She's uh, in the Alex Magistrates Court today uh, where this trial involving Gerard Ackerman should be running again every day in a different courtroom. There is an impact by load shedding where justice is not being meted out because of the delays of load shedding. The Midday Report. Uh, Mendy is really uh, in Pretoria. You know, ANC took over Hamaskral from Buputatswana uh, way back in 96 or so. It's over 20 years running that municipal, uh, that area. Now they blame everyone else except themselves and giving contracts to the likes of Saudi. Uh, suddenly they blame DA, which has been running the, the area for seven years. It, it doesn't make sense. Mathematically, who's to be blamed? William and Pretoria. Everyone is to be blamed. That's the point. So the ANC issued a statement yesterday saying how disappointed they were in the DA, conveniently forgetting the whole Edwin Sodi contract and, and Royval and all of that, and the fact that they ran this municipality for years. Isn't this exactly in line with what Fakile Mbalula said on Hard Talk? Have you seen the clip of what he said on Hard Talk about the state of the country? Uh, where, where conveniently he's forgotten that he was a cabinet minister for years and the ANC has been running the country for, for 30 years. Uh, so this is very much in line with that attitude, isn't it? The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener on 702 at Cape Talk. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. See money differently. Well, let's go to Parliament now because the Standing Committee on Public Accounts is uh, meeting today. They're trying to decide what to do about uh, this uh, issue around Andre Dureta and his allegations. We know that Andre Dureta testified before Scopa um, and they've been hearing from the ESCOM execs as well. Lindsay Dentlinger, EWN reporter, on that story for us. Lindsay, good afternoon to you. Tell us about the Scopa deliberations. Very swift today, Mandy, um, uh, unlike what we've seen at Scopa in recent weeks, really to decide what, as you pointed out, what to do next. They still have one more witness, uh, which is the National Security Advisor, Sidney Mufamadi, to appear on Friday. Uh, and so the chairperson said it might have appeared that they were being a little bit preemptive uh, by trying to decide what to do next. But they've really reached this point where they've had this testimony that we've heard over the last three weeks or so, and really having to now um, come down to whether they proceed with what they started out to do, which was to determine whether or not to have an inquiry. And really today they kind of unanimous, Mandy, that it would be premature to get to that stage. If anything, they say the testimony that they've heard so far have thrown up more questions, and they are certainly at least six more witnesses, Mandy, that they identified that they possibly want to hear from before making that uh, decision. And they also want Andre Dureta to be called back to answer further questions. But firstly, Mandy, top of their list um, that they want to um, uh, hear from, the person they want to hear from is a Hawks investigator by name of Jaap Berger, who is the person that Andre Dureta ostensibly refused to be interviewed by after he gave that ENCA interview. But here's the chairperson of the committee, Mandy, Nkuleko Schlengwa, explaining why they want to speak to General Jaap Berger. My sense is that we need a physical meeting with General Berger, given the extent to which um, is sort of the point of convergence of all these interactions, whether it's from Mr. Director's side or the National Commissioner of Police, 
the Minister of Police and Minister of Public Enterprises. He's a, a, he's a common denominator on this. So we do need a, a protracted engagement with, with him. And Lindsay, tell us about some of the, the concerns from Scopa around uh, ESCOM and Dorator and, and what else is bubbling there. So really, you know, um, Mandy, these are really just uh, allegations for people for them. And they're saying they're just, everybody's pointing to somebody else. Everybody's passing the buck to somebody else. Everybody's saying, well, ask that one, ask that, that one knows. Uh, and so as uh, the DA Benedicta Van Nimmen put it, she said it was almost a he said, she said. Uh, and so they really feel that they don't have enough information on the table. Um, they don't also feel that should it come down to it, that they want to hand what they've done so far to an ad hoc committee of parliament, which would be one avenue uh, of investigating what has come out of here uh, further. Uh, they would rather want to keep it uh, if they go that route, an inquiry within um, uh, Scoper itself. But what um, MPs are really saying that with the, with the energy crisis that we're facing, with load shedding that seems there is no end in sight, that they really need to probe these allegations further and it can't just be left um, to have been uh, a matter of hearing testimony and it gets taken no further, Mandy. Mm-hmm. Lindsay, thank you very much. Lindsay Dentlinger, EWN reporter. Well, she mentioned there some of that. Let's have a listen to Benedicta van Minnen uh, from the DA speaking about some of those concerns over ESCOM and Dorator. Thanks very much, Jeff. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I think that we really do, as Scopa, need to sit down and, and draft some recommendations to Parliament about this, because, I mean, it's a very, very serious situation. Uh, I think we all realise how... ESCOM's success or failure really at this point holds the country's face in their hands. The problem is what we're sitting with is very much a he said, she said, well, very few she says, but very much a case of he said, no, he said, no, he said. Um, if you just look, for example, at, at the documents that were produced here between what the current board chair was saying and what Prof. was saying about you know, what Andre is saying about what the minister is saying. So it is, to a certain extent, quite difficult to draw firm conclusions or recommendations from this. Another complication is that under the rate appears to be abroad, so one isn't going to be able to subpoena him. Um, so really, I think what we need to do, if I may suggest, is is discuss the panel as a committee what recommendations need to be made given the constraints that we're operating under? That's Benedicta van Minnen from the DA speaking about concerns around ESCOM. Andre Dureta Scopa uh, tries to decide what to do with these allegations. The Midday Report. Staying on this theme of ESCOM, we're going to look at two different things. The one is the impact that we're seeing from load shedding uh, on power surges and insurance. Uh, the other is on the wage negotiations that are taking place within ESCOM and the unions as well. Uh, so we're going to look at both of those things. Firstly, the Ombudsman for Short-Term Insurance uh, has recorded a steady rise in complaints related to power surges. I'm reading here from a report by MoneyWeb in which uh, they say that... Uh, 
Uh, Osti has advised policyholders to reevaluate their cover as insurers tighten their belts in the face of rolling blackouts. So this data uh, is in the 2022 annual report, and it shows us that 11,542 complaints against all categories, uh, 17.8% more than in 2021. Well, let's speak to Editor Texero McKinnon, who's the Deputy Ombudsman for Short-Term Insurance. Editor, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Well, let's focus firstly on the issue of power surges, which obviously have a big impact on household contents. What are you seeing there in the data? We are seeing, uh, thank you, first of all, for inviting me. Um, We are seeing more and more complaints related to damage caused to household contents as a result of power surge, as a result of load shedding. And what we're finding is um, basically policyholders being caught out in the sense that they haven't realized or haven't taken note of the changes that have occurred over a number of years where traditionally this cover was provided in most uh, policies covering household contents, but slowly that has been eroded um, over a number of years. It is not included in a lot of the covers provided by various products. And if it is, it comes at an additional cost, which people do not readily and can't readily afford. So when it comes to claim stage, that is when they realize that they're actually not covered. All the cover has been substantially limited. So there's a maximum liability for the insurer. So as we've been saying over a number of years, when we've seen this trend arising from 2013, is check your policy wording, speak to your insurer or broker, Make sure that there are no surprises at claim stage. You know, the problem is that load shedding is no longer an unexpected and unforeseen event, which is what insurance, short-term, non-life insurance Mm. is going to cover you for. It's now almost expected. Um, It is anticipated. And so we as owners have to take more of a role in protecting our assets. That's so interesting. So so insurance companies now expect us as consumers to, to be more aware of the fact that load shedding is here, it is with us, it is not unexpected, so we've got to prepare. So what kind of, uh, what does that mean then for the consumer? What, what do we have to do? What do we have to check? You, you basically have to check that your high value appliances are not plugged in um, at the time that perhaps the end of your load shedding period, uh, you know, or, by by the stage of your um, period so that you uh, don't have a power surge when the power does come back on. So it's to prevent the power surge or applying, of course, power surge protectors to the more valuable appliances in your home. So there are a number of measures that can be taken. It it does mean that uh, there's more of a burden on the consumer to protect uh, their own equipment. Uh, we, we are speaking here about uh, the, the rise in, in claims associated with power surges and load shedding, but vehicle complaints uh, still dominate uh, when it comes. They accounted for 43% of, of total complaints. Correct. Uh, so that's always a reflection of the market as well. Most of the non-life industry um, is based on motor vehicle insurance. And so uh, consistently, our office has always had that as our highest category of complaints. It's not yet at pre-COVID levels where we were sitting around 50% of all the complaints to the office related to motor vehicle insurance. So we're not quite there yet, 
but it has definitely risen from around 34% in 2020. The trends we see in there, um, again, um, rejections of claims on the basis of not taking uh, reasonable precautions to prevent a loss or damage, um, and, and specifically in claims where there's an allegation that the driver was speeding. So there's a lot of cases that come to our office where we see drivers speeding um, and then resulting in accidents, mm. which insurers are not prepared to cover because they believe that that is recklessness and not negligence. Right. The latter, of course, being covered by the policy, but not the former. Editor, thank you very much. Editor Texera McKinnon, Deputy Ombudsman for Short-Term Insurance, unpacking some of the data highlighted in that joint 2022 annual report published by Osti and Alti, which is the Ombudsman for the Long-Term Insurance. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener is brought to you by Nedbank Commercial Banking on 702 and Cape Talk. Nedbank is a licensed FSP and registered credit provider. Staying on the theme of, of ESCOM and load shedding and all of that, well, ESCOM's locked in a closed-door uh, talk with uh, Solidarity Num and NUMSA. They're busy discussing wage increases. Uh, yesterday, we heard how ESCOM had uh, moved to a 4.5% salary hike. So that negotiating table uh, still uh, very much full at the moment. Three unions uh, there at the table rejecting its revised wage offer. Andrew Levy is a managing partner at Andrew Levy employment giving us some analysis on this andrew good afternoon to you this is the the, fi- the final round of wage negotiations we're in the third round of wage negotiations uh, the unions and escom uh, still look pretty far apart at this point they are indeed but this is a function of the union's negotiating strategy and all the unions do this and frankly um, in my opinion it tantamount to bad faith bargaining I don't think it's a particularly good style of negotiating, but they will uh, come in at a double-digit figure. They'll usually stop there, let it go into dispute, but they know that there is no way they're going to get a double-digit increase. It's not going to happen. So they will quite probably go into a conciliation process um, and see if someone can use their good offices to bring them together. The union will drop. Unquestionably, they'll drop to 8% or so. They'll probably settle at 6.5, maybe 7 if they're very lucky. Um, but the point here is that Eskim is a, uh, an essential industry. So Eskim employees are not allowed to strike. Um, what has to happen is they have to go to wage arbitration. Now, I would think that that for them would be the worst possible outcome because the arbitration would be binding. And I think there are probably very few arbitrators who would feel a great deal of sympathy Mm. for the idea that Eskim has to incur more debt uh, to pay salaries, um, and, and yet service is not being delivered. So, Andrew, what is the logic then behind this this strategy? NUMSA says that it's rejected uh, the wage proposal made by ESCOM. Um, They're saying that what what ESCOM's proposed is a 0.75% increase, not even based on on CPI. You you say they go in at double digits. It's going to land up in in arbitration and they won't be successful there. So why do they do it? I think that they believe that it's an effective way of negotiating. And it's not only NUMSA. This is common to all of the unions. Um, And, you know, I think that uh, what does happen is it ends up in 
unnecessary strike action, and we then get a settlement at a level at which there could have been a settlement um, had the parties really engaged. So, you know, frankly, it, it, it's something that I really don't understand the logic of. You know, at the end of it, wage settlements tend to run on reasonably fixed rails. The union will know uh, what they're settling at elsewhere, and they will know that there is not one single um, negotiation they can point to where they've had a 12% increase. So I can only surmise that they believe by uh, taking up an extreme position, then in point of fact, uh, it will pull the other side up. Mm. Now, the other thing that is, is, is possibly worth considering is that if they have in the back of their minds that this could lead to or end in an arbitration, then in point of fact, we should be as high as we can uh, because hopefully right. the arbitrator will you know, give, give our comfort and castor oil in um, equal measure. Mm. Uh, but again, that is uh, um, not a, a wise strategic move because if your figure is way out of the ballpark, the arbitrator will just reject it and, and focus on the other side. Yeah. So I think we're going to see a lot of fireworks. I think we're going to see lots of threats. Um, I, I think it'll go into dispute. It'll go into conciliation. Um, but right. uh, if they choose to go on strike as they did last time, and that got them a rapid increase, so they settled six and a half, seven percent we may see the same again. Yeah. And Andrew, sorry, I have to leave it there. Andrew Levy, managing partner at Andrew Levy Employment, are giving us some analysis there on the ESCOM wage talks. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.